start asking yourself the question as you're watching television this afternoon, tonight, whatever it may be. Is this a conversation about an issue that actually affects us? This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Counterspin, the Tom Hartman Program, the David Pakman Show, Democracy Now!, the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and On the Media. At FAIR, we never tire of saying the primary measure of media in an election is not how fair they are to this or that candidate, but how fair they are to the people, all of the people who are affected by the outcome of this particular process, such as it is, and need to see how it functions in relation to them and their needs and concerns. The people are the story and how they are represented by a process that's ostensibly intended to do that. That corporate media don't see things that way is indicated by the resounding disinterest with which they greeted a poll from the Associated Press Nork Center for Public Affairs Research. The survey from mid-May found fully 90 percent of voters lack confidence in the country's political system. Forty percent describe it as seriously broken. 70% equal proportions of Democrats and Republicans say they are frustrated by this election. 55% describe themselves as helpless. Only 17% think the Democratic Party is open to new ideas. 10% say that of Republicans. 7 in 10 think primaries and caucuses ought to be open. And 1 in 4 say they have hardly any confidence their vote will be counted. I want to underscore that these are registered voters, the ones who haven't become totally disaffected. Being published by AP, the survey could scarcely have been made more widely available to the press. But what pickup occurred was in your Crystal Lake, Illinois, Northwest Heralds and your Davenport, Iowa, Quad City Times. Not that there's anything wrong with them, but the Denver Post and the Christian Science Monitor seem to be the only big outlets interested in a pretty darn newsworthy set of findings. At minimum, media's pretense that they're reflecting the political pulse of the U.S. public while they're focused overwhelmingly on elections that majorities are unhappy with is like looking for your keys under the lamppost, not because that's where you lost them, but because the light's better. And by the way, while the most popular word people used to describe their feelings about the 2016 election was frustrated, the second most popular was interested. It's that combination of frustration and interest that's been drawing people together at events like Breaking Through Power, the four-day conference hosted recently by Ralph Nader, aimed at mobilizing civic organizations, media crickets. Last month, hundreds of people marched from the Liberty Bell to Capitol Hill in a protest called Democracy Spring, aimed at ending big money's power over politics and ensuring voting rights. That, too, fell into corporate media's abyss. It's hard not to figure that elite media prefer to just talk among themselves about what the public thinks and wants and deserves from the political process without having to actually listen to them. You know, some people, they just won't understand Six 
secret land it has seen many hands it has wealth and gold yet it is fragile and old and now the greedy souls just don't care to know of the changes it will confront you know last night louise and i you know i got home around 8 15 after the tv show and turned on the tv and said well let's see if we see any issues being discussed and we watched uh, much of Chris Hayes' show and much of CNN. We were flipping back and forth and the first half of Rachel Maddow's show. And at that point, it, we had invested more than an hour and a half in watching television and not heard a discussion of one single issue. What we were hearing was discussions about personalities, about electability. I've been saying this for a long, long time. These issues, by and large, do not get discussed. Now, somebody on Twitter came out and said, hey, there was this... A uh, conversation about the minimum wage between, you know, somebody from Think Progress and somebody from Heritage or whatever on CNN uh, last week, you know, a 15 minute conversation about it. And I said, oh, then you win a book. You know, I'll, <laughs> I'll send you a book. I'll take your word for it that it actually happened. I didn't see it. But the fact of the matter is that and, and you know, and, and then there's other people saying, oh, you know, no, issues are being discussed all the time. No, they're not. Just just ask, start asking yourself the question as you're watching television this afternoon, tonight, whatever it may be. Is this a conversation about an issue that actually affects us? Are we actually having a conversation here about, in you know, well, the minimum wage, you know, whether it should be raised or not, what impact it has? Are we going to are we going to have a serious discussion about net neutrality? Are we going to have a serious discussion about uh, net metering, for example, the the the, uh, the ability to sell electricity back into the electric grid that's being fought by by for profit electric companies and fossil fuel companies all across the United States. I don't think you're going to see a discussion about that on any of the networks. There's too many big interests that are in. Are you going to see any discussion at all about the pharmaceutical industry and how they're ripping us off? No. Are you going to see a discussion about the, the health care, the health insurance industry and and how they're, you know, they're this uh, what is a Cigna and Aetna, I think are trying to merge and and the federal government is suing to block it. And and and, you know, now uh, one of these companies, I, I think it was Cigna, I, I mixed them all up. They all ended with an ah, uh, um, is saying, well, we're going to pull out of some of the Obamacare, you know, exchanges. And I think this is just like revenge for you're not letting us merge and. And, and have total market dominance and all this kind of stuff. I'm not hearing discussion about any of these things. What I'm hearing is, oh, can can Trump pull it out? Is Trump crazy? Is, uh, you know, is Hillary Clinton? Uh, what's going to happen with her with her uh, FBI interview? Oh, my God. You know, and what does that have to do with the election? What does that have to do with the issues? How does that affect my life? Just start asking yourself that simple question as you're watching these segments on television. How does this affect my life? What does this have to do with the average American? What does this have to do with working people? And I'm telling you, and I, of course, you know, then then somebody said, well, hey, Tom, you, you know, you, on your program, you debate stuff uh, or you, you uh, uh, I forget the phrase, you know, you, you have people on who talk about personality and who can win and who can't. Yeah, sure. This is this is a this is an opinion show. I'm not pretending to be the news. If you want to see real news, watch Democracy Now and Free Speech TV. Uh, it, I mean, Amy Goodman is doing real news in the tradition of Walter Cronkite, and to the best of my knowledge, she's about the only person out there who's doing it. 
I haven't tracked down Dan Rather's show. I know he's got a show that's on the Internet. I haven't, haven't uh, uh, frankly, taken the trouble or the time. I, yeah, my schedule's pretty insane to track it down. I would guess that Dan Rather's probably doing the news. But I can tell you that the news is not being done real issue news. We have an issue, a largely issue-free presidential campaign right now. You, you may get an issue discussed once in a while, but it is so few and far between. It is so rare. It's like, oh, yeah, way back last Thursday on CNN, there was a discussion about minimum wage. Right. This is not how it should be. It should be. A, we should be discussing every single. I mean, there's all there. I'll give you I'll give you a list of issues. OK, here's you know, I mean, it, the things that we could be discussing. Union membership. Should we make it easier to be a member of a union? Should we have card checks? Should the Employee Free Choice Act, which has not been brought up in seven years, should this be passed? Should we uh, should we ban monopolies? Should we start enforcing the Sherman Antitrust Act that Reagan in 1982 stopped enforcing and start breaking our companies? What's the what's the maximum threshold or the minimum threshold? The, the, what's the what, what? How many companies do you have to have it dominating an industry before you say that that industry has been captured by what is functionally a monopoly, even if it's a duopoly or triopoly? It is two companies, three companies, four companies that basically dominate the entire industry. They they start doing price fixing. You see this with the airline industry. You see it with the with the cable TV industry. You see it with the with the uh, you know internet uh, uh, ISP industry. You see it with the food industry, although it's a whole lot less visible because there are literally thousands of brands that are sold as standalone brands that are all owned by a half a dozen companies. You see this in the media. There's literally over 10,000 magazines owned by six companies. So let's have a conversation in America about how many companies should dominate an industry before we start breaking them up. We had that conversation back in the 70s. Richard Nixon in 1971 started the wheels going to break up AT&T because it was a monopoly. Jimmy Carter finished the job. And what happened? Shareholder value increased. Uh, Bell Labs got spun off as as uh, I'm forgetting the name of the company, but it was, you know, as a as a as a separate company, Lucian Technologies. Uh, was the name of the company, uh, you know, as a as a as a uh, R&D and development company. Now they've all kind of merged back together again. And I, I'm just I'm just I've, I've got a list of about 40 issues here that I would love to hear discussed. The actual discussion of TPP and trade, an actual discussion of Social Security and how to strengthen it, an actual discussion of how does single pair work? Have you ever heard a conversation about how does single pair work in Canada, for example, or in any other developed country? Every developed country in the world has single pair or some close variation to it, except us. Have you ever heard a conversation about how that works with the details, the issues? No, of course not. Not on our media. All I need from you is a good conversation, conversation. Cause it gives me sweet inspiration Inspiration. And to tell you I never felt this way before I know there is 
I've always sort of half-jokingly, but also seriously talked about the ways that the David Pakman show could end and people canceling all their memberships or everybody stops watching. Those are sort of real ways in which the David Pakman show could end. But over the last few days, something has potentially started to happen that is not something that most independent shows and YouTubers like us were really worried about. Starting with some major YouTubers like Philip DeFranco and the Young Turks, but starting to trickle down to some smaller channels as well, who maybe haven't gone public with this yet, so I won't mention them. YouTube has started sending out some notifications that some of their content has been unmonetized. And I'll sort of explain how this works. So when we upload a clip to YouTube, by default, ads play before the clip, and that's how we make money. Uh, individually, if clips are marked as um, having content that is not, uh, I guess you would call it family friendly or, or widely community acceptable, the clip can be marked as age restricted and thus monetization is removed from it. You still have the video on YouTube. People can see it. People can comment, but no ads run and thus the publisher doesn't make any money. Uh, what has started happening and we will put up a piece of the notice that people have been getting is some YouTubers have been getting a message saying controversial or sensitive subjects and events, including subjects related to war, political conflicts, natural disasters and tragedies, even if graphic imagery is not shown, may make it so that your video is not approved for monetization. Further, if monetization is approved, your video may not be eligible for all available ad formats. YouTube reserves the right not to monetize a video as well as suspend monetization features on channels that repeatedly submit videos violating our policies. So the initial reaction is, wow, YouTube is basically handpicking a lot of the issues that independent news channels talk about. And they're saying, even if you don't show graphic pictures, even if I talk about a war without showing images from the war, that could make it so that we are not allowed to earn any revenue on that video. Uh, we have a 12,000 video archive on YouTube. If 10, 20, 30% of our videos stop earning ad revenue, we're absolutely in a tough spot. One conversation that has come up is that of censorship, which is listen, look at the timing. We're leading up to an election. We're leading up to an election in a time when independent media is offering viewpoints you don't usually get. It's offering perspectives you don't usually get. And it's being driven by ad revenue through this mechanism and out comes YouTube and they say, hey, you know what? Even if you're talking about tragedies, even if you're not showing any images, might not make money on that video. That is one side of this. The other side is that YouTube has actually commented on this and YouTube has officially said that there has no there has not actually been any policy change whatsoever and no change to the enforcement of the policy rather that the notification system has changed. And now when a video of yours is flagged as being inappropriate for monetization, you are merely notified by YouTube in a way that is different and it is confusing some individuals. I don't know about that because I was talking with some of my friends at other shows and they said, no, no, listen, 200 of our videos were unmonetized overnight. It's not a question of before we weren't getting notifications and now we are before all the videos were monetized and now all the videos are not. So to date, as I've spoken about with Rachel and Jason, our channel has not been hit by this and we will see ultimately what happens. I am hoping that this is a misunderstanding 
However, my concern is that Philip DeFranco, a huge, huge YouTuber, actually said that he uh, he or one of his staff spoke to someone at YouTube and that they seem to say, yeah, we are going to more aggressively police this now and uh, too bad. So speculation is rampant. Is this to appease really big advertisers who don't want to have their ads play on anything that is even remotely adult? Are we basically saying the only way to earn money on YouTube is if you're doing makeup tutorials and uh, uh, content for little kids? We don't know yet, but at least when you're talking about uh, free speech, and I don't mean that in the government sense, but I mean that in the ability of having a, a wide variety of viewpoints represented, but also being able to be compensated in a way that is uh, similar to that of government media, corporate media, et cetera. This is very scary, as I think you guys can understand for many people that are doing independent shows like ours. Well, this has also kind of been a problem for Twitter and Facebook in terms of how they regulate hate speech and what constitutes hate speech. And yeah. so I kind of think it, it's I mean, it's an interesting topic to think about in terms of this narrative of time and time and again, violence and crime that we're seeing every single day in the news. So I, I think it's difficult because you have to look at, OK, how are we going to filter this in a way that we are not kind of putting forth really graphic and inappropriate images, but how are we also allowing people to open up a very important discussion and kind of have that discourse? And the difference being, of course, that when we're talking about someone being banned on Twitter, like Milo Yiannopoulos, which we covered because they were inciting harassment or whatever, or whether we're talking about Facebook or YouTube, these are all companies which can set community guidelines. They can enforce them. No one is making the argument that they are doing anything illegal by this. But we are talking about depending on what this shakes out to be. And I still am hopeful that the comment we got from YouTube is right and that this is not a change to the policy, merely a change to the notifications around this policy. We are talking about something that if we learned was tied to the influence of big corporations would not be surprising. If we learned it was tied to the idea of suppressing certain viewpoints, it would not be surprising. But hopefully, Jason, this is all a clip that we will do once and never have to speak of again. That's my hope. Yeah, so am I. Very hopeful, but at the same time, somewhat, how do I say, uh, scared, I guess. Disturbed. Disturbed. Yeah, that's a great word. Because what could happen here is YouTube, they could the wrong person in the wrong chair to be there monitor, monitoring all these videos and say, oh, uh, democratic agenda, oh, well, let's do away with that. And it's you know basically ruining our freedom of speech. And interestingly enough, I know YouTube and Google has been banned from China, whereas I think, if I'm, I might be right there, I'm pretty sure I am, but because of the fact that they were letting people post and talk about whatever they want and the, the Chinese government wants complete control of it, is, yeah. that, is that what's next here? Well, I don't think it is. I mean, I think that that would be a, a horrific slippery slope. Nobody is even suggesting that there's going to be any limit placed on what videos can be uploaded to YouTube beyond the limits that already exist. You can't upload porn to YouTube. You can't upload incredibly violent gore, you know, gore type of stuff. Uh, but I, I'm not seeing that. This is much more subtle, which is, yeah, and even discussions of certain controversies, you can do them but you're not going to make any money off of them. So as a YouTuber who depends on YouTube revenue, now you have to make decisions based on, well, can I even make money by telling this story? Very, very bad. And we can all sort of imagine the direction it will go.
Today's episode is sponsored by the Dollar Shave Club, and the good news is that you don't need to choose between price and quality to get an amazing and affordable shave. Dollar Shave Club is the answer, and to prove how amazing their shave really is, right now they're going to give you your first month for free when you join the club. Just go to dollarshaveclub.com, pick the razor that works for you from their lineup of amazing blades, and they'll deliver your razors right to your door for a third of the price of what those greedy razor corporations charge. That's all there is to it. For a first-class shave, choose their executive blade and combine it with their Dr. Carver's Shave Butter for the smoothest shave ever, so you can look and smell like a million bucks without paying for it. Here is your chance to see why over 3 million members love Dollar Shave Club. Dollar Shave Club is so confident in the quality of all of their products, now you can get your first month of the club for free. Just pay for shipping. After that, it's just a few bucks a month. No long-term commitment no hidden fees. There is no reason not to do it. Get yours at dollarshaveclub.com slash best. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash best. Now.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. As we turn to the crisis engulfing Fox News, as further revelations about former chief Roger Ailes have raised questions about how much the company was aware of his transgressions. Ailes has now been accused of sexual harassment by more than 20 women, including Fox News anchor Megyn Kelly, former anchor Gretchen Carlson. Earlier this week, another former Fox News host also accused Ailes of sexual harassment. Andrea Tantaro says she repeatedly reported Ailes harassment to senior Fox executives last year. She says she was demoted and then taken off the air. The former director of booking at Fox News has said Ailes sexually harassed her and tortured her for two decades. Laurie Loon told New York Magazine that Fox News knew about the harassment and helped cover it up. She said the harassment amounted to psychological torture and ruined her life. Loon called Ailes a predator and said her duties included luring young female Fox employees into one-on-one situations with Ailes that she knew could result in harassment. New York Magazine has also reported Ailes ran his own blackroom operation out of Fox News in which he used Fox money to hire private detectives and political operatives who carried out Ailes' personal campaigns, including targeting journalists. The magazine reports Ailes sent private detectives to follow around multiple journalists who'd been reporting on him. Ailes has denied all the allegations against him. He resigned in July, receiving a $40 million severance package. Rupert Murdoch has stepped in as interim chief of Fox News. To talk more about these revelations, we're joined by Sarah Ellison, Vanity Fair contributing editor. Her most recent piece is an exclusive headlined Inside the Fox News Bunker. It exposed the existence of explosive audio tapes recorded by multiple women in conversation with Ailes. Sarah Ellison is also the author of War at the Wall Street Journal. Inside the Struggle to Control an American Business Empire. She worked for 10 years at The Wall Street Journal in Paris, London, and New York. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So, take us inside the Fox Bunker. Well, right now inside Fox News, um, of course, the organization is without its longtime leader, Roger Ailes, and that divides the newsroom. Um, That used to be that there were sort of Ailes loyalists who were very unhappy to see him go, and then people who who professed a lot of professional relief that he was gone. The the pro-Ailes camp is shrinking um, as more and more women come forward, but I think that a lot of what they're, they're 
wondering now is what's what are they going to learn from the internal investigation that has been launched to to look into these allegations that this so for people who aren't following it very much sure lay out all of these revelations that have come out and also what you have found, explosive audio tapes. Right. I mean, I think you gave an excellent uh, summary of the of the various women who have come forward. Uh, Roger Ailes was, you know, he, he was forced to resign in July and he received a very large settlement um, payout from the company. What I found in my reporting is that Gretchen Carlson, um, who was the, the woman who initially brought uh, the first law- lawsuit against Roger Ailes, is in discussions now with the company, 21st Century Fox, which owns Fox News, about an eight-figure settlement. And in those settlement discussions, um, one of the, that's where the tapes came out, the idea that there are these explosive tapes with that, 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 that um, have recorded conversations between Roger Ailes and multiple women, including Gretchen Carlson. What's ironic about that is that Roger Ailes was sort of known for taping other people, that he was very worried about secrecy, that he always felt he did always feel that other people were spying on him, um, and and he was worried about that. I mean, there was a, there was a wooden door outside of his office um, in order to be able to get in. You had to you couldn't see through the door as as you would be in a normal executive's um, office. Everyone who was approaching the 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 um, walking down the hallway to his office was caught on a camera. But the question of what is in these tapes and whether or not they become public and how they would become public is really at the center now of this of this settlement discussion, which is. Very tense. And explain who is investigating all of this. So 21st Century Fox asked Paul Weiss, which is a large New York powerful law firm, to do an internal investigation into the claims that were brought by Gretchen Carlson. Um, And they have brought a number of women in to to speak to them about what they experienced. And that's how the Megyn Kelly revelations um, came out. That's how many of the women, when we talk about 20 women, that's where we're getting that number from, the number of women who have either contacted the investigation or been heard by them. Um, That investigation is a very powerful tool for the company, and namely the sons of Rupert Murdoch, James and Lachlan Murdoch, who are professing to want to really clean up the culture of Fox News and make it a trusting workplace, a 21st century workplace where every, where women can feel, women and everybody else can feel safe. And so the, the company now is dealing with this, um, very strange conundrum where the man who made this, this Fox News, um, organization a, a huge powerhouse. And whether you liked it or didn't, you had to admit that it was an incredibly powerful news organization. Their shareholders want them to, to keep it exactly the way that it was. All the human beings who work there would like it to change. And so this is something that they're sort of grappling with right now. Hmm. So you have, he's getting $40 million yes. uh, in, a, in a settlement. And we learned that because for a brief moment, yes. um, well, explain what happened, how Drudge Report, how Matt Drudge <clears throat> got a hold of the settlement as they were working it out. Roger Ailes wasn't even kicked out of the place. Right. I mean, this is this is several weeks ago in the course of a very tense last week before Roger Ailes was, you know, had officially resigned. um, There was a report about Megyn Kelly talking to the um, talking to the internal investigation about how she had been sexually harassed by Roger Ailes. In response to that report, Roger Ailes's attorney wanted to put out a statement debunking what Megyn Kelly had said and saying, she thanked me. She's thanked me many times. We have a wonderful relationship. And instead of sending that statement to the Drudge Report, they sent a draft 
agreement that had the $40 million figure in it. So, of course, everyone who has been reporting on this was was whiplashed because they thought, oh, wait, what, what, what is this? Why is, why is Drudge getting an early report that he then very quickly took down because he was contacted by um, people begging him to sort of take it down, that it was a mistaken, um, mistaken leak? I mean, it's a very—it's in the midst of all the, these grisly headlines, it's a very funny moment, in fact, because you have someone who's trying to spin against someone's sexual harassment claims, and instead they end up putting their own settlement package right out there for hmm. the rest of us to see. Um, earlier this week, CNN's Brian Stelter said he was spied on by a Fox News staffer. Right. About 10 years ago, I had a crush on a woman at Fox News. She was a low-level staffer. I was in college at the time. So I was going out with what I thought were dates, because I thought these were dates. These were not dates. She was actually reporting back to Fox News about me. She yeah. was reporting back what I thought of her and about CNN and MSNBC and Fox. Because I was a reporter on the beat, they were actually spying on me that way. Now, I didn't think that was a big deal at the time. I thought it was the way Fox operates. Fox is a political organization. Yeah. But now we know they were actually sending out private investigators. They and were following reporters around. I mean, tailing we, we knew reporters. covering... So, wow, uh, that's CNN's Brian Stelter, who formerly was at The New York Times. Mm -hmm. Explain this, Sarah. Well, there are other journalists who've come out with similar sort of stories. I mean, Brian Stelter, John Cook at Gawker. Gabriel Sherman is probably the person who's received the most attention in this way. Um, he worked on a biography of Roger Ailes for years, and Ailes made a comment to—I mean, there's there a report out this week that Ailes had commented to someone that I could send someone over to his house and get him beaten up. And, you know, he— uh, Gabe Sherman and his wife had their apartment swept for, for bugs. Um, you know, the question about what Ailes did, there, there's the, there are the sexual harassment claims, but then there's the question of at what point does any of this kind of alleged behavior become illegal and criminal as opposed to something that would be brought up in a civil lawsuit? Um, and I think that they, they you know, the overall intimidation, I mean, Fox News always was an intimidating place to cover and to write about. And journalists sort of knew that. They knew that there was a possibility. I mean, in addition to getting an angry phone call, there were other reporters who had negative anonymous stories um, leaked about them and smeared. I mean, there was a, a, a story many years ago of a, of a reporter who had gone into uh, drug rehab, and that was leaked by Fox News's PR department. I mean, it's just, it's sort of unthinkable in terms of um, the way that they, that they allegedly operated. And now what we have, I mean, what's, what's interesting is this Gretchen Carlson um, lawsuit has sort of broken the dam. Everyone is now able to come forward with their stories. And it's, it's, it's sort of what uh, a culture of fear looks like when it finally breaks down. And it implicates so many. Explain exactly. who it implicates, like Andrea Tantaros, who said she went to higher up. She named those higher ups. Right. I mean, so there's, there's, Obviously, Roger Ailes um, is is out, out of the building now, and everyone is is aiming most of their attacks at Roger Ailes. But he also had a lot of people under him, and there are a lot of questions about how how willing those people were to follow his orders, how active they were in kind of in enforcing what it was that he wanted them to do, what they exactly knew. Um, that that's the one level. Then the other level is above him. What did people at the parent company, Rupert Murdoch's 21st Century Fox, what did those people know? I mean, I was just speaking with someone who said um, this Lori Loon settlement that we keep talking about, this $3.15 million. Now, she was the so-called booker. And she was a Fox News booker, <clears throat> and she's the person who told New York Magazine that over the course of 20 years, she was essentially Roger Ailes' sex slave. Um, and what she—I mean, she reported other executives inside of Fox News that— 
that knew of that would call her to New York. Bill Shine is the person that she mentioned specifically. There's a general He's counsel. He's the Fox executive vice president. Exactly. He was sort of Ailes' number two. Um, Diane Brandy is the general counsel who uh, drew up the settlement arrangement with Lori Loon. The, those people are, are and, and others. I mean, there are other unofficial sort of, there, there, there are less official sort of quote unquote friends of Rogers who are people that were on the payroll or, or who were on sort of monthly retainers, um, that no one in the building really knew exactly what they did. But, but Ailes sort of had them, and there's an allegation now, another story that came out that he was using those people to do, to run these kinds of campaigns, whether they were smearing journalists or going after other enemies. People like Bo Deedle. Exactly. Exactly. And, and those people are leaving. I mean, those people are being um, dismissed now. And so that's part of the effort that Rupert Murdoch is engaged in at this moment to kind of get rid of those people. But the point that I want to make about the three, the, the settlement is that when you ask people at 21st Century Fox and Fox News why that wasn't reported and why that, why did that didn't raise eyebrows? They say, well, at a, at a, Division like Fox News, which brings in one billion dollars of profits, that's a that's a rounding error, three point one five million dollars. I mean, and how many of these are there? Well, that's I mean, there are two questions. One is that how many do how many three million dollar settlements do you need in order for it to register? How many are there out there? There that can't be the only settlement that we um, that it is in existence. But companies decide all the time what is material and what is not. It's ba- material is this term that public companies like to use in terms of they just get to decide what they think is important. Much larger companies than Fox News disclose much smaller settlements than $3.15 million. So at a certain point, people above Ailes and other people have to answer for that. And Lori Loon, a broken woman, I mean, for 20 years, as you described it, his sex slave, and then br- told to lure in young women from Fox to right. bring them into a one-in-one situation right. with Roger Ailes. Yeah, I mean, I think that the, that we still don't know the, the extent to which and the way that which Roger Ailes enticed people to do the things that they're accusing him of, right? So you, you know, there, I have heard stories about how he could also be very, at turns, very charming. I mean, I, this is, this is the case with any kind of charismatic leader. Um, they have a side to them that can be very compelling and charismatic. But what we've heard in, I mean, what we've heard in the past six weeks or so is a very different story. And it's one where he was largely, terrifying people and they were either too scared to speak out um, or they were um, or, or they were actually doing what it was that he was was telling them to do and also too scared to speak out. There's a media where they pump and news They are terrorists and killer bees on the loose Where they promulgate fear and promote abuse So you won't leave your house In fact, you better stay tuned But they've not much to say There's not much for them to say They're gonna try real hard But there's not much for them to say When CBS head Les Moonves chuckled that the mean-spirited, myth-driven, racist, and misogynist candidacy of Donald Trump, quote, may not be good for America, but it's damn good for CBS, that's all I got to say, close quote, he was laying bare the lie that there's no relationship between corporate media's profit motive and the humanity of the conversation they encourage. Moonves said he wasn't taking any side, but he was. 
And that divide has been further exposed by CNN's recent hiring of Trump's fired campaign manager, Corey Lewandowski. Lewandowski's job involved enforcing Trump's blacklist of media he disliked and confining reporters to a pen during campaign events. He shoved and threatened to pull credentials from a CNN reporter who defied the edict, and he grabbed and restrained reporter Michelle Fields, which led to criminal charges that were later dropped. Not too surprising then to read accounts saying female and Latino reporters, especially within CNN, were protesting the hire. But Washington Post reporter Paul Farhi countered with comments from a prominent staffer who told him, quote, I get the argument that he was a bully, but I also get why we hired him. There aren't many people who know more than him about how Trump's campaign thinks and works. That could be very valuable to us over the next few months, close quote. Well, the problem with that is that Lewandowski has likely signed a non-disparagement agreement. He won't say whether he has or hasn't. And it doesn't matter, say folks like former NPR ombud Alicia Shepard, whose op-ed in USA Today called the hire, quote, a smart move for CNN, which is, after all, a business dependent on increasing viewership, close quote. This isn't rocket science, Shepard says, quote, it's political theater and you have to have big names to fill the seats. Lewandowski will do just that, close quote. Well, maybe, but if that's all it is, why wouldn't CNN just go to an all explosion and naked people schedule? Both of those have been known to draw in viewers. But wait, wait, there's more. Another CNN reporter told The Post, putting Lewandowski on the payroll could improve CNN's access to Trump. Well, Trump hasn't been shy about interviews, and CNN hasn't been stingy in covering him, even airing empty podiums at which Trump was scheduled to speak over other candidates actually speaking. But still, the hire can't hurt with resolving issues with his campaign, the source says. So there you have it. Hiring someone for your news channel who is deeply, sometimes physically, opposed to critical journalism is clever because it might help ensure you can continue to give his former boss a platform. A boss whose attitude toward the press is expressed in the statement, quote, I would never kill them, but I do hate them, close quote. It's worth noting that the same USA Today with Shepard's column carried a piece by the paper's media columnist Rem Ryder, who, unlike Shepard, sees meaning in Lewandowski's pronounced disdain for the enterprise he's now being paid to be part of. Ryder says the hire, quote, encapsulates the utter bankruptcy of practice that is awful, but nevertheless has become a widely accepted part of the scene, close quote. I could say George, just to illustrate the political machinations, why did they let Ross Perot on in 1992, and what happened in 1996? Oh, this is a fascinating story, Ralph. The commission loves to tell the public that, look, we can't really be a bipartisan, anti-democratic organization. Look what happened in 1992. We let Ross Perot on the presidential debates. This is absolute nonsense. 
1992, Ross Perot was running for president, and he had about 7% in pre-debate polls. And the commission wanted him out of the debates. They actually had an advisory committee that had made a candidate selection criteria, a recommendation, and said he shouldn't participate. But at that time, President George H.W. Bush was losing in the polls, and he thought that Ross Perot's participation would help him. So his top negotiator sat down with the Clinton side. At that time, Clinton was running as a Democratic nominee and insisted that Ross Perot participate in the presidential debates. Bill Clinton eventually agreed. He didn't want to be perceived as excluding a popular third-party voice and pay a public price in the polls. But the commission fought back. The commission actually tried to limit Ross Perot's inclusion to a single debate. But because the major party candidates agreed to include Perot, because they thought Perot's inclusion would serve their political interests, he was allowed to participate in 1992. And he climbed in the polls from 7% to 19%. He was widely deemed the winner of two of the three debates. He obtained millions of dollars in public financing and was the most successful third-party candidate since Teddy Roosevelt. Well, if you fast forward four years later, Ross Perot was running for president again. 76% of the public wanted him to participate in the presidential debates. He was polling at virtually the same level he had been in 1992, approximately 7 to 8% in the polls. And yet this time, he was excluded. Why? Because this time, the Republican Democratic campaigns decided it was not in their interest. Bob Dole was the Republican nominee, and he desperately wanted to keep Ross Perot out because he believed that Perot was taking more votes from him. Meanwhile, President Clinton, running for re-election as a Democratic nominee, was determined to minimize the number of audience viewership. He didn't want anyone watching these debates. He was winning by 20 points in the polls. He didn't want anything to change the dynamic of the race. So they reached an agreement. George Stephanopoulos explained to me, he was one of Bill Clinton's top negotiators, he explained to me that they reached an agreement where Bill Clinton agreed to exclude Ross Perot on the condition that they canceled one of the three debates, so there were only two debates, that they banned follow-up questions from the debate so no one could really challenge the president's answers, and that they scheduled the debates opposite some of the World Series playoffs in baseball to minimize viewership. So this is completely crazy. You're, you're watching television at home. You want to watch an exciting Democratic event that would include the candidates you want to see. You turn on the television set. Wait a minute. Ross Perot's not there. You don't know why. Wait a minute, there's two debates instead of three. You don't know why. And why do you have to choose between the baseball players and the presidential debates? You don't know why. And the reason is because the commission allowed the candidates to dictate the terms and the candidates serve their interest, not the public interest. And what's so important, Ralph, about this is the commission serves as a convenient shield that protects the candidates from public criticism. If the public knew what I just told you, they would have been outraged. They would have been angry at the Republican and Democratic nominees. But they never had to pay a public price in the polls because the commission took the heat. A poll conducted after the election said that 82% of the public blamed the commission, not the Republican or Democratic nominees, for Ross Perot's exclusion. Yes, and before we talk about how to break out of this and have 21 presidential debates or so, why are we rationing debates? Let's talk about what's coming up with Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. Now, they've got three debates that are scheduled, and Donald Trump said he's only going to certainly go to one debate, and he'll see how it goes, and he'll see whether he wants to go to the other two debates. Give us a scene. Where are the debates? When are the debates, George? And who are the chosen reporters by the two parties to ask the question? Sure. There are going to be three presidential debates this year. The first presidential debate is held on September 26th in Hempstead, New York, and then there's a vice presidential debate and then subsequently two more presidential debates. 
The criteria for participation in these debates is what Ralph mentioned earlier. A candidate has to reach 15% in pre-debate polls to qualify for access to those debates, which is an insanely high level. It's a very problematic criteria for three reasons. First of all, if a candidate gets 5% in the polls, they get millions of dollars in taxpayer funds for the next election. In other words, Congress said if you win 5% of the vote, you would deserve millions of dollars of money from taxpayers to support your next campaign. How is it possible that a candidate can qualify for taxpayer funds and yet need three times that support just to get access to the debates? Second of all, if we're going to decide who gets in the debates, at least the first debate, you should simply ask the voting public, who do you want to see in the debates? It's a, it's a very democratic criteria and wouldn't cause you know, hundreds of candidates to be on stage because very few candidates get on enough state ballots. And finally, at this kind of criteria completely ignores the enormous structural barriers independent third-party candidates must face that make it virtually impossible to reach 15% in polls. Anyway, but turning back to this particular election cycle, the commission has adopted this 15% criteria, which they have used since 2000. They've scheduled these three debates. They've chosen moderators from each of the significant uh, networks, you know, Lester Holt from NBC Nightly News, an anchor from CBS News, Anderson Cooper from CNN, Martha Raddatz from ABC, and Chris Wallace from Fox News Sunday. They do it on purpose. They sprinkle, you know, these moderators across the network so they get a buy-in from the networks. Each network is now heavily invested in participating in these debates and supporting these debates and in complying with the rules. And these are going to be, as you mentioned, Ralph, arguably one of the most watched presidential debates in history, precisely because everyone's dying to see what the matchup will be like when Hillary Clinton faces off against Donald Trump. Maybe bigger than the Super Bowl audience, over 100 million people. It very well may be, and it'll probably attract a massive global audience. You know, there is one improvement to the presidential debates, and I, you know, don't want to toot our own horn, but we definitely had a hand in this. When we launched our organization back in 2004, the formats merely consisted of each candidate having 60 or 90 seconds and sometimes 120 seconds to answer a question, and they couldn't talk to each other. And this was really not a debate. It was a bipartisan, glorified press conference. We attacked them for years with our supporters across the civic community and said, this is not a debate. You've got to alter the debate. You need discussion between the candidates. And in 2012, in this election cycle, they've heeded some of our requests. Instead of these 60 or 90 second soundbite responses, the candidates have about 10 minutes after each question to have a free-flowing conversation. Yeah. So I do want to give the commission credit on one issue, that they responded to the overwhelming pressure that we exerted and have improved and modified their format, and we consider this a victory for debate reformers. But George, all other aspects of this process are still fundamentally anti-democratic. George, before we get into the plight of the third parties, like the Green Party, Jill Stein, the Libertarian Party, Gary Johnson, other parties not getting on the debates, tell us about your organization, your website, how people can get in touch with you. Sure. The organization we run is called Open Debates. It doesn't support any particular independent or third party or any major party. It's a genuinely nonpartisan organization that is committed to one thing and one thing only, making sure that our most important political events genuinely serve the public interest. And so we advocate for a presidential debate sponsor like the League of Women Voters that would be in the hands of a, as of a civic group that would fight for the public interest and would ensure that the debates are highly watched, inclusive, and democratic experiences that genuinely educate the voting public. Our website is opendebates.org, and we would love all the support we can get to make this debate reform actually happen. Back to the absurdity of five polling companies or so being required to average 15% for any third-party candidate or independent can get on these national debates. The only way these people 
if you're not a multi-billionaire, can ever reach tens of millions of Americans. Even if they campaign as I did in all 50 states and filled the Madison Square Garden, the Target Center in Minneapolis, St. Paul, the Boston Garden, I reached less than 2% of what I would have reached in having been on one debate, which by the way, a sizable majority of poll after poll, the American people wanted me on in 2000 and 2004. But look at the trickery here, and I want you to comment on this. The five polling companies are commercial companies, and they're often tied right in with the Wall Street Journal, CBS, New York Times, Washington Post, CNN. And so the very media that doesn't give coverage to these third-party candidates, and they give very little coverage, can in effect determine that the result of the polling is never going to get close to 15%. Why don't you comment on that chicanery? It's an absurd cycle. The entities that choose to decide which candidates to cover are the very entities that ultimately determine what the polling levels are. So you have this cyclical, disastrous situation for candidates. A media company is not going to cover a candidate that is not high in the polls, and the candidate's not going to get high in the polls because the media is not covering them. It's a lose-lose situation for an independent or third-party candidate. It's impossible to break through and reach that tipping point that allows them suddenly to attract a swarm of media attention because the media entities just won't cover them. They won't let them get there. That's why we need to expand the number of debates from three to five and allow at least, at the very least, Ralph, that first debate to be an inclusive debate that simply says, if you are a candidate who's on enough state ballots to win an electoral college majority, you and a majority of Americans want to see you on the debate stage, you should be allowed to participate in that first debate. Now, the commission, this is the most famous deception of the commission, their favorite deception. When you challenge them on their candidate selection criteria, when you say it's impossible for a third-party candidate to reach 15% for the reasons you just outlined, Ralph, they say, oh, geez, if we lower the candidate selection criteria, over 200 candidates run for president every year, and we're going to get dozens and dozens of candidates on stage, crazy people like Billy Joe Clegg of the Clegg Won't Pull Your Leg Party, or Mack Truck from the Crustacean Liberation Party that wants all of lobsters and crabs to have the same rights as human beings, and we can't have a democracy like that. This is utter nonsense, Ralph. If you just said, let's include all the candidates, regardless of polls, who managed to get on enough state ballots to win an electoral college majority, just managed to do that, you would never have more than five third-party candidates since 1988, since the inception of the commission. Yes. And most of the time, you'd only have two or three third-party candidates on that stage. And if you adopted the criteria that my organization advocates, that if you're on enough state ballots and a majority of Americans want to see you on the presidential debate stage, over the last 25 years, no more than four total candidates, including the major party candidates, would have been on that stage. I don't think four candidates is too much. They had 17 candidates on the stage in the Republican primary debates. They can handle four candidates in a general election debate stage. Political lies have a rich history. 
Take, for instance, the sinking of the USS Maine off the coast of Havana in 1898. Two days after the sinking, the New York Journal declared that the Maine had been brought down by a Spanish torpedo, helping to launch the Spanish-American War. But there was no Spanish torpedo, just a U.S. publisher, William Randolph Hearst, who wanted a war and plenty of politicians who felt the same way. Or we could look at President Johnson and the 1964 Gulf of Tonkin incident when the president claimed the U.S. military had been attacked twice by the North Vietnamese. The media repeated the claim, and Congress authorized Johnson to use military force in Vietnam. But Johnson later admitted to an aide that there probably had been no second attack, and for all he knew, the U.S. sailors may have just been shooting at flying fish. The war lasted another 10 years. Rick Perlstein is a writer for The Washington Spectator. He says that though the lies never cease, the kind of lies politicians tell and get away with has shifted over the last half century, beginning in the waning years of the Vietnam War with a moment of optimism. There was this brief period in the 1970s in which truth became fashionable in American politics. You know, you had Senate hearings on the deceptions of the CIA. You had, of course, the Watergate hearings. You had a strong sense that the job of the media was to call powerful institutions to account. And one of the things that ended it was Ronald Reagan saying America was still a city on the hill, that we're God's chosen nation, and that all these Debbie Downers in the media didn't need to be listened to. They say that the United States has had its day in the sun, that our nation has passed its zenith, My fellow citizens, I utterly reject that view. That was inherited by a generation of conservatives who really believed that they were fighting for civilizational stakes. And a kind of ends justifies the means logic entered the Republican Party. When you discuss the press and its relationship to the political lie, Mm -hmm. something happened somewhere in, let's just say, the 90s. When the press stopped calling out lies for what they were. There was a shift when the conservative movement began taking over the Republican Party in the wake of Richard Nixon and Spiro Agnew. Agnew famously used the press as a political tool and tried to describe them as a kind of sinister other. The pampered prodigies of the radical liberals in the United States Senate have hatched their little chicks, and now they're coming home to roost. And that brings me to my target for tonight. (laughs) The professional pessimist. In the United States today, we have more than our share of the nattering nabobs of negativism. He was degrading their authority as referees. He said that they had a dog in the fight, you know, that they were these unelected aristocrats telling Americans what to think. They weren't these kind of gods 30,000 feet up on Mount Olympus proclaiming the truth, like, you know, someone like Walter Cronkite had done when he went to Vietnam and said, you know, we're losing this war. To say that we are mired in stalemate seems the only realistic, if unsatisfactory, conclusion. Once the press came to believe that their job was uh, not to say this is a lie and this is the truth, but we have to be balanced between two ideological factions, that structurally advantaged the side that was more willing 
to lie. And it really became a perfect closed system because if the press did intervene, if it left its false equivalency, false uh, objectivity. Then they're biased. Then they're biased. And aha, everyone from Sarah Palin back to Spiro Agnew were right all along. I've had the experience of calling out a lie by a Republican activist on, uh, if you'll forgive me, a public radio show and having the host, you know, jump down my throat for using the L word. In fact, we happen to have oh, goodness. a little bit of the tape with you and anti-tax firebrand Grover Norquist on The Diane Rehm Show. Roll the tape. Uh, no, I'm not for abolishing Social Security or Medicare or Medicaid. I'm for making them fully funded. Right. Would you well, of like— Of course, Grover Norquist wants to get rid of Social Security and Medicare. No, I don't. Don't tell work. me my position, he, sir. I've written a book on the subject. You're a Leninist. Oh. Rick, no. hold on. Grover Norquist. He's lying. How would—please uh, don't use such words on this program. All right, Rick, that wasn't necessarily a triumph of civility, but why? Why was she offended? What was it about calling Grover Norquist a liar just based on the facts, something that she wasn't willing to listen to? I, I, I got one thing wrong. Grover Norquist actually held up Stalin as his hero because he said Stalin controlled the personnel and Trotsky controlled the army. But the fact of the matter is I broke the rules of the game. The rules of the game say that both sides in a partisan dispute are supposed to be adjudicated, quote unquote, objectively. And if objective truth is traduced in the process, so be it. With Trump, something new is going on. Nothing that comes out of his mouth is true, including the words and and the. Right. Dave Roberts of Vox get a wonderful piece that really kind of got to the bottom of this. You've always kind of been allowed to lie on policy, whether it was, you know, George Bush saying his tax cuts would go to the bottom half of the income distribution or the stuff involving Iraq or the stuff uh, Mitt Romney was saying about what his economic policies would do or Jeb Bush deciding that he could create a certain level of economic growth basically just by saying so. And the press doesn't like to adjudicate policy. But the other thing is quantitative Dave Roberts points out that you kind of allowed nine lies, and as long as you kind of retract the 10th one once the media calls you out, everything's kosher. Donald Trump won't have any of that. We're in new territory now. What does it mean for future elections and future populistic demagogues? Well, of course, it's entirely frightening. But I think the silver lining, the redemptive movement in this can come on the side of the media. If they just basically stop worrying what politicians think about them, if they call out a lie and uh, a politician squeals like a pig that they're biased, just act like a grown-up and keep on calling out the lies. Just do it. We just heard clips today from Counterspin on the media completely ignoring the widespread dissatisfaction with our political system. Tom Hartman pointed out that cable news almost never discusses actual issues. It's amazing. David Pakman told the story of the new implementation of the YouTube Terms of Service that may genuinely threaten many independent news shows. Democracy Now! discussed the Roger Ailes sexual harassment scandal and the fallout at Fox News. 
Counterspin explained CNN's terrible decision to hire a former Trump staffer. Ralph Nader spoke with George Farah about the Commission on Presidential Debates and the role the media plays in keeping out third-party voices. And finally, On the Media dove into the recent history of political lies and how our current media landscape actually favors politicians who lie more. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hey, Jay, this is Justin Henderson in Mitchell, Indiana. I just got off of a job, I mean, literally right now, working with a crew of Central Americans. And uh, I want to tell you, if you talk to them and you hear their story, it's heartbreaking, sad, and amazing all at the same time. And uh, I would love nothing more than for these six individuals to be citizens of the United States. They're very good people. Very polite, offered me drinks with them. Uh, it's hot out. And uh, most importantly, they were happy, smiling, and working hard. And, uh, you know, the Central Americans that, that come to this country to work get a lot of flack. And I think uh, your progressive audience understands that that's not necessarily the case, that they are uh, bad people. These are really good people. And uh, so uh, I wanted to express that. And I've noticed, you know, we're, we're a, a country with borders and there are a lot of people that want to confine uh, or want to continue to put up borders to keep people out. Yet these same people want to spread democracy throughout the world. And I think we just we need to let these people in and start with a grassroots democracy uh, campaign that can spread throughout the world through their voice. So these these uh, Central Americans that I was just speaking of, they they tell the same story that my grandfather told me uh, years ago before he passed away, and that's that's a story of, of a family that is uh, suffering from economic depression, and the family gets together and they migrate to uh, an area where there's work, where there's a, a living to be made. And this is no different. These gentlemen are all related in one way or another. They all come from the same town in Central America. And uh, they're just coming where, you know, from an economically depressed area into a prosperous area to uh, benefit their families. And uh, they're not out to cheat anybody. They're not out to hurt anybody. They're just out to uh, provide, a, you know, a sustainable living for their families. And, and so that's, just, that's what I wanted to share. This is just a mirror image of what went on in the 40s you know, 30s, whenever the Depression was. But it's something we see firsthand now. And so that's one way to relate relate to it. If you're an, an American and you have that privilege of being a natural-born citizen, just, you know, think about your family and what they went through in hard times and, and relate it to these, to these people that are just trying to, you know, get by. So have a good one, buddy. And uh, thanks for, for listening and taking my call. See you. Hey there, Jay. It's Megan from Baltimore. I figured I would call in about some sort of issues surrounding abusers and how much uh, sort of uh, social capital we allow them to continue to have after it comes out that they are, in fact, abusers. 
been having some issues with this in the sort of metalhead, weirdo, noise kid scene here. And the only good thing thus far that's come out of it is knowing who I no longer trust or feel safe around. Um, so I didn't know if, you know, you or any of the other listeners had any advice on, like, radical accountability or rounding up the community to, you know, su- support survivors and how do you, you know, hold somebody accountable for something like that. <laughs> but yeah, um, love the show. Keep up the good work. Hey, James Wood. I also wanted to comment on the uh, media episode and you know, we bemoan corporate media. We bemoan the power that they have. But you know what? It's our fault. If we didn't watch it and give it ratings, and I'm talking about the American people, then it wouldn't exist. But it does. That old adage of, if it bleeds, it leads, is real. It's not just a bullshit saying. And, I, you know, I would also challenge uh, the listeners of this audience to, to ask, answer this question honestly. Because I'm a hypocrite in this regard um, when a major major news story happens like um, Sandy Hook San Bernardino something like that I'm watching CNN and I bet y'all are too why? because we want to see the images we want to see them live we, want to, we don't want to read anything there's too much information coming in we just want to watch and who do we watch? I do it I'll admit it. I watched San Bernardino right on CNN. I watched the Paris attack right on CNN. It's our fault. We're the ones to blame for that. Media is nothing more than a television show. And television shows that get ratings stay on the air. And those that don't go off the air get replaced by something else. So the reason why it's on the air, the reason why it's been... Uh, so successful, the reason why it will stay successful is that people will watch it, same as I do. And what's what's worse is that I'm a I'm a cord cutter. I don't even have a cable subscription. I only have Netflix, Amazon, and Hulu. That's it. And I still go out. Uh, what happened in uh, Paris is I went over to my grandfather's house and watched it on his cable. I mean, it's... It, it's just the way it is, and and I would bet that if, if the if the audience of the best of the left answered that question honestly, a huge percentage of them would say, "Yeah, I do the same thing when I want to watch it live, when I want to watch the images. I'm watching I'm watching one of the major news news cable shows. It's the way it is. So that was my thoughts on it, and. You know, I would like to see if, if maybe people could, like, email you and say, yeah, I do it, or no, I don't know how you can set that up, but it would be kind of interesting to get some feedback on that. Anyway, have a good one.
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, to Megan from Baltimore. Honestly, I can't say that I have any uh, good advice on community accountability the way she was asking for, uh, but I'm hoping that someone out there does and will be willing to call in give your two cents on that and then to wade i i found this old message from him that never got played on the show uh talking about the media from the last time i did a a media episode and i yes he's obviously correct sort of at the macro level people watch terrible cable news that's why it exists Uh, i'm glad that wade is a big enough person to admit that he is part of the problem Uh, i certainly uh, will not admit such a thing. Uh, I, I, I hate cable news. I, I feel viscerally uh, the all of the sentiments expressed in today's show. I, I don't watch cable news occasionally. I don't even watch it during big stories, as, as he was talking about. I think the last time that happened uh, was the Boston bombing. Amanda's from Boston. She insisted that we watch all of the news about the Boston bombing. We had CNN on, and I was nauseous the whole time. I just was frustrated out of my mind that we had to be watching it, but I understood why, and I tried to sort of ignore it and let it be off to the side. There was all kinds of misinformation coming out that turned out to be wrong later, and so I was just frustrated in the moment and then angry later when I realized, okay, so we heard a bunch of stuff that wasn't true, so what a complete waste of our time to have been misinformed that way. And so, you know, just in general, like, I would so much rather listen to an analysis of a news story, like, 24 hours or more after the story is broken, so that any of that initially incorrect stuff can be sorted out, and that and someone hopefully someone smarter than me or maybe an expert on the subject being considered, that they have had time to consider the breaking news story and then sort of, you know, chew it up and spit it back out for me. Give me some context and give me some historical context and how do we get from here to there. And that's so, it just seems so much better. Like, I don't even like when Amanda... Uh, tells me her she gets the like news alerts on her phone. She reads me a headline before she's read the article, and it drives me up the wall. I'm like, you know, the, the the last major news story I think she did that to me on was that breaking news story of the, the shooting of multiple cops. And when she told me about it, it, they thought that it was still a coordinated attack from several gunmen. Like I literally would have been better informed if I had known nothing about it until the next day when everything had gotten sorted out. So if I'm going to know about a thing, I want to know all about it. I want the facts. I want a detailed explanation. I want some context. I want some history. I want it all. And that that's why I actually like uh, the Tom Hartman clip from today, you know, maybe more than the rest, just talking about how the news doesn't discuss actual issues anymore. Because it it reminded me of the last time I was in someone else's home and the cable news was on and we watched three straight hours of MSNBC, Chris Hayes, Rachel Maddow, Lawrence O'Donnell. And I just remember being shocked 
at how little I learned in the course of those three hours. I, I think that it is literally true that on average, I probably learn more new things in every like 15 minute span of listening to independently produced news podcasts than I did that night watching three straight hours of MSNBC. I think that night they were just talking about whatever the biggest Trump news of the day was and had person after person after person come on and just give their opinions or speculations about it. So I wholeheartedly echo Tom Hartman's call to question yourself. If you ever find yourself watching that news and you think like, oh, I'm probably learning something from this, really question that. Like, what are they talking about? How is that going to affect your real life? How is it going to affect working people's lives? What Are they just speculating about some story or are they talking to you about an issue? Are they actually explaining something to you? Are you learning something from it? Because I, I, I gotta say, I can't remember the last time I learned something from cable news. Sad. Keep those comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. And I have one more uh, extra one for you today. Uh, I, I learned recently that in the Overcast app, uh, this, it's an iOS app to listen to podcasts. It's the one that I use. It's my favorite one. Uh, it's free to use. You know, go download it and check it out if you want. But it's it's like the second or third most popular app after, you know, like the Apple podcast app. And they have a listing of, you know, most popular shows in each category. And those are generated based on uh, what shows are most often recommended through the app. So if you subscribe to the show and you have a like a, an episode that you like or maybe just the show in general, you can click the recommend button in Overcast and that does some algorithmic magic that might promote Best of the Left to uh, more people. So if you use the Overcast app, go ahead and hit that recommend button and let's see if we can get a lot of people to do it. Maybe we can get the show boosted up into that highly recommended area. But wait, there's more. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestofleft.com and it's a cry and shame how we get so trained we can see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing we can see past our own sad stories and forget how to listen See past our own sad stories and one